You're listening to episode 37 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. He's Alex, I'm Tara, and it's a brand new half of the baseball season, but is it the same St. Louis Cardinals? Hey everyone, thanks for checking out another episode. As it always is, or almost always, it's Tara and Alex with you this week, and it is the first show after the All-Star break, and I'm not going to lie, after the first game after the All-Star break, I was afraid we were in for a lot more of the same, and since then, the Cardinals have actually looked pretty decent in the first two series so far, they're currently in the top of the seventh inning, tied with the Pittsburgh Pirates, one run apiece, Jack Flaherty on the mound. And the pitching up to this point, the ability to score runs, all of that is stuff we're going to talk about uh, eventually during this show. But Alex, it's at least nice to see them playing a little bit more like a team that looks like they should be two games out of the division lead instead of a team that's lucky to be two games out of the division lead. I think they're going to do this all year. They're going to pull us back in uh, just when we've reached our boiling point of frustration, uh, just so we can constantly be one or two games away from whatever playoff spot is out there. (laughs) And then um, on the last day of season, it will just all uh, go up in flames and we will all just scream at each other. That sounds so. But at least it'll keep our attention, I guess. Yeah, at least we'll have. something lining there interesting uh, to watch i guess <laughs> um I, I was listening to uh Derek gould's best podcast in baseball earlier today and he had uh, mike farron on uh who, who covers the diamondbacks and they kind of got into this interesting discussion i'm kind of curious what you think let's say the cardinals win 86 or 87 games and therefore um and say that's enough to sneak into one of those uh Playoff spots, meaning like say the wild card game, but they go one and done. Are we satisfied? No, we're not. Well, right? okay. Let me circle back because the the reality is no, because Cardinals fans don't want just a a playoff appearance in that it's more of a play in game to get there. I don't think I, I, to me that's not. Maybe it's just because I still see that game as a play-in game and not mm-hmm. as a real postseason experience. But at the same time, the reason that I hesitated is because with the way that this team has played in the first half, even that is a bit of a victory. So maybe in that sense, but I, I wouldn't say satisfied, no. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. It's, it's certainly better than nothing. Uh, I, I think it also depends on... Uh, like, let's say they lose, but it's a very entertaining game and that they, they uh, put some runs on the board and they, they just get beat. I, I think we handle that a lot better than, say, a game like, uh, I, I believe the one heading into the All-Star break where Jack Flaherty was awesome, but we just didn't score any runs. Uh, a game that we've seen uh, too many times this year. I think if, if they were to have a game like that, we would be a bit more upset. Um, and this raises another question um, kind of related to this. Do, do you consider, the, so the Cubs and A's last year made the wild card game and uh, in their respective leagues and lost. Did they make the playoffs last year? Like, do you, do you consider them playoff teams last year? I mean, it's kind of hard with the Cubs because they won a lot of games. And then at the very end, they, 
you know, the Brewers snuck up and, you know, kind of won that division. So it's very hard to kind of think of the Cubs as not making the playoffs, but they sort of didn't, right? I mean, they didn't win a single game. They didn't play a single series. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, like, I guess what do we I consider that. I view that game as sort of a technicality. <laughs> so, like, technically, yes. But if it's my team, I'm not super stoked that, yay, we made it to the playoffs when you played but lost in the wildcard game. I think it's a little bit, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit hypocritical to to think differently of it if you win that single game. I mean, if you win the wildcard game and then don't win another game in the following series, it's still not really doing you a whole lot of but, good. But, but at least you're playing you, a playoff series. Yeah, right, yeah. right. So, yeah, I mean, I think in my head they're still separated by, like, the real postseason and the almost postseason. But as a technicality, yes, they, they were playoff teams because they played an additional – game even though it wasn't a series that no one else got a chance to play i'm about to give like a very bad comparison i think but it's sort of like when you go to a concert and there's a somewhat well-known opening act and then you get there to see that band and then you realize oh there's actually a band i've never heard of playing before them yeah Uh, (laughs) that's kind of like the different stages uh like the the headliner is the world series the good opening act you're excited for is the playoffs and then the part that you didn't even realize you had to sit through is the uh playing game hey that's a very stupid comparison um so let's move on from from that um yeah i was just thinking about that today whether or not we would be satisfied but i think i would i satisfied on the wrong word i would be certainly happier than i have in years past but i think also the fact that you know, we are not, say, one of those teams in the NL West who is um, a few games removed from, I guess, the wild card, but um, but a million miles away from winning the division. It's just not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so I so I'm of the opinion, like, win the division. Just make it so much easier on yourself because it's possible. Yeah. You know, that you're not you don't have the Dodgers twenty games in front of you or, or whatever it is. Uh, you have the Cubs who. Uh, who are good but flawed, and they're only two games ahead of you. So just win the division, make it easier on everyone, and make all seem right in the world again. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I was in St. Louis this weekend for the Blogger Day, and John Mazalek made a point of saying that teams who expect to be in the postseason have to sort of think of their their team in two different ways, one being we need to be good enough to make it to the postseason, two being a team that is good enough to compete in the postseason. And it was interesting hearing him say that and then looking at this team and going, okay, okay, but what about the first one? (laughs) What about being a team good enough to get to the postseason first um, and then addressing the, the secondary issue of, you know, how you compete with the other best teams in baseball. And I, I don't know. I think, Yes, there's some satisfaction in being a team that's good enough to get there. But once you're there, no one wants to just be the team that got there. And you'd like to think you'd have the pieces in place to to make some noise at that stage as well. But evidently, that's sort of an additional piece of the the team building process uh, as far as front offices go in, in John Mazalek's mind anyway. Mm-hmm. I, I feel as though the 2014 Royals are the last team to sort of make a run where no one saw it coming yeah Uh, because you know they came back and won that crazy wild card game against the a's uh 
and then just kind of kept steamrolling uh, everyone until they met up with the Giants. And, and yeah, the Giants were a wild card team too, but we kind of still held the Giants in a different light, I think, because, you know, they, they were coming off two World Series titles and whatever many years. And so their story didn't quite seem as like, oh, where'd these guys come from? Like the Royals did. Uh, but I have a quick question about Blogger Day. Uh, you've, sure. you've been a couple times, right? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I think I was listening to the podcast you did with uh, Daniel and Alan. This has been going on for like nine years and such. Yeah. Uh, I've not been to all of them, but yes. <laughs> could, because I think most of us would agree that Mazalik is under a different, uh, what's the word, more pressure this year? I, I, I've never mm-hmm. heard, it, there's a bit of a fever pitch this year on Mazalik that hasn't been there in years past. Could you, so my first question is, one, can you feel that in the room? Like, was it, or did, I I think maybe even someone said he might have even openly acknowledged it, but maybe kind of more like in passing as a joke or something. My second question is, because uh, it's Mazalik and DeWitt, as in DeWitt the third, not, mm-hmm. do they give off, I think it's so cool that the team does this. Uh, I would love to go one year. I'm always, also always curious though, do Mazalik and DeWitt feel as though, like, do they give off the impression like, as they were heading there in the elevator, they're like, oh gosh, let's just get this over with. Like, uh, like how happy are they, do they seem to be there? It's funny because I, I was joking with Daniel Shapta and, and some others before the event that there's this weird sense from particularly John Mazalak that he always knows this is going to be sort of a weird thing, but he also absolutely loves it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I feel like this year may That's be cool. more for DeWitt than in past years. And I think Mo's often in years past said something about the fact that this is a, a way for them to sort of gauge the temperature of the fan base and to maybe, um, I think even this year, DeWitt was talking about how much information is gathered and analysis is done. Basically, they don't have to pay for (laughs) whether they use it or not. There's just a lot more information available. And it it kind of gives them this window into the most engaged sections of their fan base. And so I think they're really appreciative of that. I think they're really curious about that investment that's being made. Um, And I think that John Mozeliak in particular has this this strange fascination with trying to figure out how to handle questions from people who don't have maybe the, the professional, um, I don't, I don't even know the right way to say it because everyone's always been, you know, incredibly courteous and grateful for the opportunity and, and all of that. So I'm not saying that anyone's unprofessional in any way, no, but there's this sort of polish. You don't have to, the chops if you do it every day. Right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, there's, there's maybe a little bit less polish, a little bit less, I know how to ask this question to get the answer that I want and more of just, I'm going to ask the question I want you to answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I think Mo in particular has, has in years past and even in this year's event really seemed to enjoy that engagement to some degree. Now, this year was a little bit different and there was definitely a different vibe in the room. A lot of us talked about it in a, a number of different ways, even in just the way that the the question and answer session flowed, which was a bit different than normal. Typically it's been like, well, I'll ask John Mozeliak questions and he'll be done and occasionally even leave the room. And then we'll ask, you know, do it questions or whatever it is. This was much more back and forth. It was much more conversational. It was much more, um, it, it, 
a little disarming in the way that they both kind of presented their case to us and then opened the floor for questions, which is not necessarily how it's gone in the past. Mo is incredibly clever and quite charming in person. And and by that, I mean, he can, you know, offer some self-deprecating joke to the introduction of an answer to a question. And then he sort of charms you with the way that he speaks about baseball and about what they're trying to do. And and you feel this engagement from him. That's actually quite warm and, and welcoming. The, the problem with that is that he, he's very deliberate and very calculated and he knows that about his own ability to communicate with people. So then you'll go back later and realize, Oh, he didn't actually answer that question. He just said some really nice things and made us all feel good about asking him a good question or whatever the case might be. So this year was a little bit different. You could feel a little bit of the tension in the room to begin with. And I mean, Mo walked in the room and looked at us and said, well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> and, you know, so he was obviously expecting some uh, maybe more hard hitting questions than normal. But I also think the reality is, and I don't know, I, I'm coming at this event from a little bit of an in-between perspective because I do work in sports media as my profession, but not with this particular project. And in this case, I'm, you know, on, on even playing field with all of the other bloggers and podcasters and writers in that room. And there's a sense that, you know, we want to go in there and, and maybe get answers that the the regular guys, <laughs> the real media aren't going to get or ask questions that they're too afraid to, to ask. And, and then you're in the room with him and everybody goes, oh, well, the reason they aren't going to ask those questions is because they know he's not going to answer them. And you have to come up with a plan B. So definitely was different this year with some of the tension. And you know, I think the timing of the event had something to do with that. It's typically been earlier in the year when it's real easy to say, uh, you know, just wait and see, or we really like the roster that we've put together or talk about what happened over the off season right. or in spring training. So the tenor of the questions themselves, regardless of the Cardinals being a 500 team was going to be different because of the time in the season in which it fell. And, um, but it was definitely, you could feel the tension in the room. I think Kyle said it while we were there, Kyle Reese, that even a, on occasion, you could almost feel that John Mozalek feels the same angst and feels the same pressure and the same nervousness that the fan base does to some degree about how you get, how you write this ship. Mm -hmm. And if he even has a good plan in place to maybe try to be able to do that. There were a couple of times where in his self-deprecating joke sort of way, he even referenced his own job, maybe not being, um, as permanent <laughs> as he'd like for it to be. Not in any way that it indicates he feels like he's really on the hot seat, but just there were, there were moments where you could really tell that, look, everyone's just as frustrated and just as, as confused about how to maybe make the, the right adjustments. And no one has real clear answers at this point. So that was definitely an interesting tone for him to take as well. Interesting. I, I think it's really cool that they do that. Um, and it's cool that Shoptaw does, has he set it up every year? I, I, like, how exactly, like, is it, was it kind so of his he, pet project and he went to them or? And, 
I, am I like, you know, not, not having, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know how much he wants to No, but I'm not exactly sure how it happened at the very beginning because that was before my time in the, the blogger community, yeah. but he worked with a couple of the old guard people who aren't even there anymore in order to set up the first one and, and figure out who would be invited and included and in, in how the, the project would go. And since then it's really sort of taken on a life of its own. I mean, he's involved in so much as, kind of confirming who is or isn't still active in the blogger community. And then the Cardinals media team sort of does the rest. And it's changed a couple of times over the years, particularly when there's been a change in personnel in the the communications department for the Cardinals, how much certain people are involved or, or aren't involved anymore. But it's it's cool that they've kept it up and and that they seem to to find some significance in it even if it's just so that, you know, 40 of us will say nice things about them for a couple of weeks after they invite us to Bush Stadium to hang out for a game. But, um, you know, whether it's just brilliant marketing or a way for them to try to, as they said, interact with some of the most committed and intense portions of the fan base, it, it really is cool and something that, you know, not every team does. Not every team includes their online community the way that the Cardinals have done. And it's, it's certainly cool to be a part of, but as far as, as you know, how it's organized and all of that, I think at this point it's mostly just about them picking out a date and checking in on, on who the bloggers are that are, you know, active and involved in their respective sites and, and podcasts and things of that nature. And the guest list changes a little bit each year, but most of that is just, you know, like I said, about who's, who's involved and who's active and writing. And there were a lot of new faces there this year, which was fun to see because, you know, sometimes a community like this can just sort of dissolve and go away and and not be as active anymore. And that certainly hasn't been the case. So yeah, yeah a really, really cool thing that the Cardinals do. And um, Daniel Shopta is the, the source of getting this ball rolling, but they've been committed to continuing it every year, which is really cool. Uh, speaking of committed, I, I have a feeling the Cardinals are very committed right now to blowing a first and third with no out uh, in the bottom of the seventh. Bader is now up with one out. Uh, no one has uh, scored yet, but uh, I will keep everyone posted on, on that. Um, <laughs> uh, he tried to bunt uh, and kind of gave away a strike. Uh, of course he did. First pitch. Um, so, so this actually, um, something you said, I don't even remember what it was now, but it reminded me of something. And uh, so I want to ask you a question. It's not even Cardinals related, so I don't even know how fair this is. I'm going to spring this <laughs> on you, but uh, I think you can handle it. I'm ready. I was thinking about the Dodgers uh, because they have won, uh, what, that they are pretty much uh, guaranteed to win their division for, what, seven years in a row now? Yeah. Um, and I, I think it was Grant Brisby uh, in the 2018 Baseball Prospectus Annual who uh, wrote his essay on the Dodgers, basically like, will there ever be a time again where the Dodgers aren't winning this division? <laughs> you know, something like that. <laughs> oh, by the way, the Cardinals now have two outs. Uh, they haven't scored on yet. Vader uh, opt Perfect. out. Perfect. Uh, foul territory. Um, my question is this. L- let's say whenever this Dodgers run ends, uh, and who knows when that'll be. L- and l- let's say they don't ever win a World Series. How will you look back at this? Let's say it reaches like, like, you know, 12 years or something like that, where they're pretty, or 12, 15 years, or where they're pretty much a mainstay in the playoffs, but they never win the World Series. How will you look back on this Dodgers run? And how do you think 
I don't know if history is the right word, but yeah, how, how will history judge it? Because, you know, I always think about like the Berets from 91 to 04. I, I think that's those are the correct dates when they won the division every year, which is insane. And they did win one World Series title in 95, the strike-shortened season, because the season began a little late from the uh, previ- from the strike that began the previous year. And, yep, the Cardinals didn't score. Um, anyway, um, and I think a lot of people look at the Braves team as almost like a failure just because they had so many losses in the playoffs. Um, you know, it, it also didn't help that they coincided with the Yankees, who were uh, kind of the last – dynasty we've seen in baseball and the first one we had probably seen in a while so they're kind of overshadowed by them there just happened to be a team that was a little bit better in the other league but they also had a lot of losses in the playoffs you know before they even got to the world series uh it seemed to be almost an annual thing after a while um and i i really don't think it's fair that people don't look at that braves team as a total dynasty because it was amazing what they did so i'm curious what we will think of the dodgers if they never cash one in it's such an interesting question because I think it's the question is ultimately how do you define success mm-hmm. in sports, right? Yeah, is no, it that, championships that, that is or question, is it yeah. right? So, so what is the the determining factor in success? I'm just sort of workshopping this out loud because uh, I, I there are so many thoughts, but the first thing I thought of when you said that is that well the the NL West hasn't been that great as far as the strength of the entire division. So on the one hand, okay, maybe you consider the competition as far as how many division titles they've won. Well, how many of those years have there been, you know, two or three teams that were over 500? Okay, maybe that's one way that you look at it. That that to me would not necessarily take away from what they did, but maybe take away from that how dominant were they really sort of factor. then if you look at the playoff series that they've won or that they've lost and the way that they've lost them, I mean, I, I think we can all admire and respect Clayton Kershaw for the pitcher that he is, but let's be honest, his postseason appearances haven't been particularly great in that, you know, you expect him to be the guy that leads them to a world series title. He's not only not done that, but he's been, you know, the starting pitcher that gave up some games that they really needed to have. So, you know, you look at that and think, okay, well, they have all of this talent. They haven't been able to cash it in the postseason. But then you look at the randomness of the postseason. Sometimes it's the the team that you least expect to win. The, you know, Red Sox in this past World Series, notwithstanding, because I think everyone knew that that was a team to beat. But sometimes it's not that team, right? And it's somebody that gets hot at just the right time or somebody that has a player who steps in who's never really been a primary contributor and all of a sudden they're the the MVP of the series. So I feel like there's such a randomness in the postseason that it's hard to say a Dodgers team that has been so consistently good like this one has been would be any sort of failure. But at the same time, the Dodgers have been so intentional and very clearly purposeful in creating World Series teams, right? It's not like they're just lucking into the postseason with a bunch of, you know, misfit toys. Like these are very carefully crafted rosters with the intent of going out and winning a World Series, and they just haven't been able to back it up. So I feel like to, to answer your question, I don't think you can take away from the success that they have had in the consistent winning, the consistent 
a high level of expectations, but I also don't think that any one of those guys that plays on that team is going to be able to look back and think, no, I think we're satisfied with, with what we did there if they never win a World Series to, uh, to sort of cap it off, which is sort of the cruel reality of sports, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think their fans would feel that way too. Um, the yeah. fans would be quite frustrated if um, 15 years come and go and they are awesome every year and they, they don't win a World Series. But it's still, um, there's still something very much to appreciate there with what they have built. It, because it does seem, uh, uh, as... I alluded to in uh, Grant Brisby's uh, column in the uh, Baseball for Texas Annual, it does seem like it's never-ending. Uh, they just keep yeah. pumping out these players and, you know, who are r- really, really good players. You, you know, well, we talk about how the Cardinals used to always, like, manufacture, you know, players like Matt Adams who could come in and, you know, from Slippery Rock and be, like, a two- to three-win player. Well, they do that and they turn them into uh, – I. I'm not sure if it's the exact same thing, but they have like five, six win players, you know, with yeah. the guys that, that they are able to um, cultivate and develop. So I don't know. It, it's very, very impressive. It's, um, you know, I, I think there's certainly no shame in losing. Uh, I love how we're devoting so many minutes to the Dodgers right now. Uh, but I, there's certainly no shame in losing to the Astros and the Red Sox in the World Series. So I, yeah. I think certainly winning the pennant uh, looks good on their resume. It's, it's certainly a lot better than, you know, losing to us in the uh, NLDS or NLCS um, and not even making it to the World Series. But yeah, eventually their fans are going to want to win a World Series to totally be able to put a stamp on this era and say, yeah, that was a complete success. Yeah, it's so interesting how different people define success. And I think that's been such a conversation surrounding the Cardinals because a lot of the conversation from the front office has seemed to be, well, we're competitive every year, but is is being competitive every year the same thing as being successful? I think most fans and, and players alike would argue no, not not really, not at the level that you expect to be when you know you're in this game to win a, a championship at some point, not just to compete every year. And that's you know that's the the battle of trying to figure out how to do that and and maintain your sanity in the in between years, which the Dodgers have done by just being really good every year. <laughs> yeah, it, it almost reminds me of that sort of 91 to 93 stretch with Joe Torre um, when they had some pretty solid teams, you know, that won 84, 87, you know, games uh, always around there. Um, but the playoff structure was so radically different then that yeah. we look back at that era, not necessarily those year, years, but more 88 through 95 as a whole as, as a almost a total failure because they were never really close to the playoffs. In, in 1993, they gave the Phillies a bit of a run in the old NL East until the Phillies uh, pulled away at the end. And I think the Cardinals may have even slipped a third place. I don't know. Um, but of course, I'm going to have to look that up because I, that's something I absolutely need to know <laughs> of course. for some reason. Uh, but now with that stupid second wild card that we were talking about <laughs> earlier, you know, it's like you said, what what does it mean to even be competitive? Anymore? Okay, yeah, the Cardinals finished 87 and 75, 10 games out of first. And uh, in third place, uh, the Expos won 94 games and finished out of them. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that wild card that keeps everyone in it. It's almost kind of genius by MLB because... Um, I don't know, like, like certainly keeps fan. I would, I would think it keeps more fan bases t- tuned in um, until that very, until the bitter end, which is, was maybe part of their goal um, 
in adding that wild card, not to mention just the extra revenue from the playoff games. But but I also like the fact, I guess, that with the, uh, and I'm sort of switching gears here, but with there being now a uh, hard trade deadline at July 31st, this is going to be really interesting in a couple of weeks, right? Yeah, it definitely should be, I think. And that was a question that was brought up with John Mosellock this weekend. And he mentioned that with the postseason structure as it is, that there are probably 20 teams that still feel like they have a chance to make a run and get in, which is sort of insane to me. And I haven't actually gone through and looked at the standings enough to know if I agree with that. But his point was, look, there's still a ton of teams in this race. And and the questions that everyone are asking are about, you know, how can we sort of fortify what we have or supplement what we have to make sure that we're one of those teams, whether it's to hold on to your place and to make sure you're good enough for the World Series, like the Dodgers will try to do, or if it's, you know, one of those fringe teams that thinks, okay, maybe, maybe just this one move will be enough to pick up two or three or four or five games and and that'll get us in. So it's going to be interesting to see if anything changes with the hard deadline, we talked about it all off season, right? That the, that free agency, that the off season needs a deadline just like that. I'm wondering if this hard deadline will give us any sort of indication of how hesitant or how readily teams will move when they're up against a a deadline like that to kind of make a decision about where you're going with your team. I I would say that there aren't too many teams who are going to have to make that buyer versus seller choice simply because as Mo alluded to, there are so many teams that still think that they can make a push. So there's probably a handful of teams that are making that really tough choice. Okay. Do we buy or do we sell? Do we, you know, go all in or do we blow it all up? But maybe there will be more of those this time because they don't have the luxury of waiting around to see what a, a late August run can do for them. But um, it, it will certainly be interesting. I, I think the Cardinals are in a, an interesting position where, and we've talked about this before, I've talked about it on other shows, I've talked about it with other people, that outside of maybe starting pitching, there doesn't seem to be a a single move that's going to move the needle a whole lot, especially in comparison to (laughs) guys just playing at their career levels as opposed to under their career norms. So I'm not really anticipating it to be a super exciting deadline for the Cardinals, but maybe that's just uh, recency bias and and sort of learning to expect nothing at the deadline. (laughs) No, I, I think you're right, and it's partly because um, it, it's just hard to figure out what moves there are even to make yeah. at this point. And also, um, I have to think they sort of feel like a lot of us do, which is that you know, okay, so we're dealing in uh, mega small sample sizes right now. But you know, ever since um, Waka was um, taken out of the starting rotation, I guess we're talking about what six starts. The starting pitching has been pretty good yeah um and paul goldschmidt uh for like over his last 50 plate appearances has been pretty good and you know i've always said like there's no player i'd rather be wrong about than tyler o'neill because i just have never believed in that profile but he has again we're talking about mega small sample sizes i know that but like the point is if if somehow paul goldschmidt and tyler o'neill get going uh whatever that even means uh 
this offense all of a sudden feels transformed as if they made a trade. Yeah. And it also, I feel like then they would be one of the teams, they'd be as good as any, as any, the other teams to, to win a wild card or, or to win, even win the division. I, I don't know. So I do like the fact that the July 31st cutoff now makes teams, um, it, it just, it almost makes it a little more riskier. Like it yeah. makes it, you know, teams have to uh, take a chance more than I guess they would have otherwise. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'll be curious to see if that's the effect that it has, or if teams will say, "Well, we we're we're happy enough with what we have. We'll just see what happens." Because I feel like it could go either way. I want to ask you though, small sample sizes notwithstanding, do you buy this little hot streak from the Cardinals? I mean, Tyler O'Neill obviously isn't going to bat 500 for the rest of the season with multi-home run nights all the time. Um, but we've seen some good play from Matt Wieters, who's playing obviously a lot more with Yadier Molina out. We've seen good pitching from Adam Wainwright, from Miles Michaelis, from Jack Flaherty tonight. Is this just sort of a weird, lucky stretch? I mean, I know we talked at the beginning this kind of feels like a team that's going to keep us all on the yo-yo string all season, but is there something happening here or is it just a good couple of games and nothing's actually changed? I should mention Matt Carpenter went on the aisle today with uh, a pretty serious contusion. Evidently he's in a walking boot for a couple of days, maybe four or five days, even after fouling a ball off of his foot last night. So he's sort of out of the equation for the moment, but the guys around him have looked a little better since the all-star break. So not including tonight, which they're still stuck on that one run in the uh, bottom of the eighth, one out tied with Pittsburgh. The three wins leading into this game, they had scored 16 total runs, which was a pretty good sign for this offense. Um, but I think I'm going to kind of give a cop-out answer, which is that after that Arizona series, which it was nice to see them come back and, and win that series, you know, they, uh, on the schedule, have 11 games with Pittsburgh and Cincinnati. And they got off to a good start last night, but it's, I, I don't think I can answer the question until after this 11-game stretch. Hmm. And then, of course, I'm sure because, you know, this stuff is so fickle, they play 162 games, I'm sure then I'll still be, you know, living and dying with each series saying like, okay, you know, as soon as they went two in a row, like, uh, all right, not, you know, they've maybe have they figured it out, you know, or whatnot. But if, if they can somehow manage to do a seven and four stretch right here, not only will that give them some separation uh, between Pittsburgh and Cincinnati, uh, Obviously, that's going to keep them right there at the division. And then I think they are a serious player. You, you know, what, what will that put them at? But like 65 games left on the season or, you know, less than that, 60, about 60 games ago. Yeah. It's hard, especially if, again, like I said, if, if somehow Goldschmidt is r- really starting to figure things out. And who knows? Like, like Eno Saris at The Athletic wrote a really good column on Paul Goldschmidt last week. And I, I, uh, I'm trying to recall a lot of it, what it said, but it basically sounded like he was being attacked differently with a lot of sort of off-speed stuff um, low and away, and that he was being a little too aggressive at trying to chase those pitches. He was swinging perhaps at, at more pitches off the plate than he had before. I'm hoping I'm getting that right. Uh, and, you know, wh- could that be he just wants to impress fans with a new contract? I That seems to be a very normal way to feel and 
and um, thing to do. And hopefully that can correct itself. I don't know. But if Paul Goldschmidt does get going, I guess is my point. It's, it's very hard to see this team not in a good place. Yeah. And I think because it's only been a handful of games since the break, I don't have a, a ton of real deep analysis to go into here, but real, real quick, if I can say something sure. good place, I think that's being way too rosy, a better, let me just uh, hedge with better place than they are, than they are right <laughs> Fair now. Enough. Fair enough. Yeah, they look better than they have. But here's the thing. I think two reasons, and this is sort of where I will conclude this part of, of the show, but two reasons I think that we look at a stretch like this and think, oh, is is this is this where it changes? Is this where the season turns around? Is because one, <laughs> Cardinals fans are pretty desperate for that moment to happen, <laughs> for there to be a, a defining moment where all of a sudden they start looking like the team everyone expected them to be. But the second thing is they still haven't looked like the team everyone expected them to be outside of that 20 and 10 first month, right? So it's not really entirely implausible to look at what they've done in the first series and a half since the All-Star break and think, oh, no, this is actually a thing that they could do as a as a recurring thing every night in scoring four runs a game, right? This is This is not like they have to play so far above their own potential to make a, a move. It just feels like this would be returning to, like I said, career norms for certain players and and career norms for those players at this point would have them leading the division. So I think the reason that it's it's easy to sort of get caught up in a five or six game stretch is that one, we really want to get caught up in that five or six game stretch pretty desperately. But two, because it's not really insane to expect this team to be able to play like this more often than not. So it feels a little bit, even though it's super cliche and and kind of eye roll inducing to say it, it does sort of feel like it's only a matter of time before they start to look at least like the the competitive version of the 2019 Cardinals that we saw in that 20 and 10 stretch, even if it doesn't break quite that well in the the final results every night. I still can't believe we swept the Dodgers. In a I was just series. thinking about that uh, yesterday. I, I can't even remember a single moment from that series, but for Marcelo Zuna uh, climbing the wall and then um, falling immediately off it as the ball bounces in front of him. It's, one, it seems just so long ago. It seemed like a completely different team. That almost seems like, did I dream that? Did we really sweep the Dodgers, this juggernaut of a team? But yeah, apparently they did. They did. I, I was there for a couple of those games. I saw Marcelo Zuna fall off the wall with my own eyes, so I can verify at least that part happened. <laughs> what happened next and and what's happened to that team since then? I, who who knows? I can't answer that question. John Moselec seems to think that the Jeff Albert experience is perhaps a bit overwhelming at this point to most of the Cardinals hitters, which I would say is probably a fair argument to make at this point based on what we've seen. But that's all still to be determined. Carlos Martinez, however, is settling quite nicely into the closer role, although he does what Cardinals closers do and makes things far too interesting at times. But Carlos Martinez, the closer versus the starter is a conversation we can have another time. He's in tonight in the ninth inning in a tie game at home. So the Cardinals playing for the win in walk-off fashion. We'll see what happens there. 
Alex, I, that's all I have to say about this team at this point, because I still feel like it's kind of wait and see mode as far as what they're actually going to do in the next couple of weeks. But if you have nothing else to add, please, the chirp of the week is all yours. Absolutely. Uh, it, it seems uh, right to talk about Bob Gibson. Um, you know, as we all know, cancer sucks and uh, pancreatic cancer, especially so. And uh, that's what uh, we all learned Bob Gibson was diagnosed with um, earlier this week. I've, I've been fascinated with Bob Gibson for a very long time. I actually read his autobiography um, from uh, Ghetto to Glory when I was in the third grade. Uh, and it was a book way beyond a third grader, uh, or at least what I remember <laughs> at the time. It was It's probably a book I'd be better off reading today. But I, I, I remember checking it out because there was a cardinal on the cover and I was like, this book looks as good as any, even though it seems very long. Uh, and so it'd be one of those things where each week I would have to go back and like recheck it out again, recheck it out again. And the, the librarian, uh, Ms. Knight, who she was one of my favorite uh, <laughs> uh, persons, um, teachers I had, uh, she, she would always kind of give me like uh, sort of like encouragement, like, I'm, like one, I'm happy you're reading this big book and, you know, keep going, you're going to finish it. And, and I did finish it. Um, and ever since then, I've just been fascinated by Bob Gibson. And I, I want to read you a quote. Um, this is a quote from Dusty Baker on what Hank Aaron told him uh, when he's batting against Bob Gibson. Um, Hank Aaron said, don't dig in against Bob Gibson. He'll knock you down. He'd knock down his own grandmother if she dared to challenge him. Don't stare at him. Don't smile at him. Don't talk to him. He doesn't like it. If you happen to hit a home run, don't run too slow. Don't run too fast either. If you happen to want to celebrate, get in the tunnel first. And if he hits you, don't dare charge the mound because he's a gold glove boxer. End of quote. And then Dusty Baker says, I'm thinking, damn, what about my 17-game hitting streak? Well, it ended that night. Um, yeah, that quote from Hank Aaron is so crazy. It almost sounds like, and it probably was partly said tongue in cheek. Um, but you hear those things about Bob Gibson all the time. He's almost the last man standing who could make old school sound so cool. Yeah. If that makes sense. Uh, and I actually got to uh, meet Bob Gibson when I was about 10 years old. I went to a Cardinals old-timers game. They were playing uh, the Braves, and a bunch, uh, bunch of players from the 60s were there at Old Bush Stadium. And uh, uh, before the game, there was a banquet, and Bob Gibson actually gave the keynote address. And before or after the address, I don't remember, we got to get autographs from a lot of the players. And, you know, Kurt Flood, Joe Torre, uh, Orlando Cepeda, Mike Shannon, all these wonderful people were there. One of the Negro brothers was there, I believe, Phil, uh, for the Braves. Uh, at, at the uh, a game, in fact, uh, not only did Bob Gibson almost hit a home run, um, and I, I believe he hit one the next year at the old-timers game, but I caught my only foul ball ever off the bat of Gene Oliver. Uh, <laughs> that's uh, neither here nor there. But, uh, yeah, I, so I was standing in line to get Bob Gibson's autograph, and, you, you know, there was a big line, so I – it's one of those things where I was kind of squeamish anyway, because I was 10 years old and this was Bob Gibson, but I uh, sort of handed him a baseball. And um, while he was signing it, I said, I read your book. Uh, and he said, uh, what's that? Um, I said, I, I read your book from ghetto to glory. And he said, really, thank you very much. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, and he was very kind of made eye contact with me. And I said, you're welcome. And I said, thank you for the autograph. And I kind of walked away. Uh, but it was a very cool moment because I got to talk to uh, Bob Gibson and, Another reason why I've always admired him is because he's always seems so refreshingly honest uh, 
about baseball. And another example I'll give on that is I saw an interview with him where he was asked about the steroid era, or I think more specifically, just steroids in general in baseball and contemporary baseball. And he basically said, like, I'm not going to judge these guys at all. I'm lucky I never had to even face that question because if I was in position where I thought a player had an advantage on me, I don't know what I would have done. You yeah. know, who knows? Maybe I would have done it. Uh, and I'm just happy I never had to to face that dilemma. And and that's a refreshingly honest thing for an old school baseball player to say. You know, it's very easy to say like, oh no, like you know, we never would have done that in my day. But he's thinking, no, man. If, if someone is going to have a leg up on me, then I'm going to do whatever I can to try and get that back. And that's just the type of competitor he was. If you read any sort of book about Bob Gibson, whether it, that features him or whatnot, you always hear the same consistent stories uh, that he was just this determined guy on the mound who was going to give you everything he had. And, you know, one thing I love about this organization is, is the old timers and that a lot of them are still with us. And so, you know, obviously we hope uh, Bob Gibson will be with us for uh, many more years and we wish him well. Uh, do you have anything to add on Bob Gibson? I mean, it's, there's so, it's, it's hard to whittle it down to one anecdote or anything. There's so many different quotes I wanted to read about Bob Gibson. But so, yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. So, but I'm sure you have something, right? Yeah. You know, it's always been fascinating to me in thinking about Bob Gibson. You know, people talk about him the way that they talk about kind of like fairy tale heroes, right? As this guy that you feel like couldn't possibly exist in the fashion in which people describe him. And yet, you know, you read quotes like that, or you hear stories, or you you see footage from his playing days or whatever, and, and you can sense that competitiveness. So it's really not that hard to believe. It's interesting, though, in comparison to today's game, and you realize kind of how much the game has changed and how much that sort of mentality and and competitive nature would maybe not play as well in today's baseball scope. But at the same time, I mean, I'm always so incredibly impressed with the fact that, like, we talk about all the changes being proposed for baseball right now. Bob Gibson changed baseball, <laughs> essentially, because he was too good for everyone else. I mean, it just is always a thing that's pretty unreal to me when you can kind of identify a a single player that made such a dramatic impact on how the game was played for everyone else. And if you don't believe all the stories about how he quickly he would throw at somebody, well, you can't really deny the actual impact he had on the game because he was just that much better and that much more, you know, of a of a fairy tale hero in real life to the game of baseball. And that's always pretty incredible to me when when I stop and, and think about it and the contribution he made to baseball as a whole, not just to the the Cardinals legacy, which is pretty incredible in its own right. So I echo your sentiments, obviously hopeful that he will be just as competitive in, in this battle, but we all know that cancer isn't quite it doesn't doesn't quite play fair and that is the unfortunate reality of it for him and for all of us but our our thoughts and prayers certainly with him in that and what a story he has created for generations of baseball fans 
to tell. Unfortunately, the Cardinals are writing a, a much less successful story at the moment as I just praise Carlos Martinez for the success <laughs> he's had as a closer and he's making me regret that. I can edit that out of this podcast, but <laughs> I, I won't do that. I will own up to the fact that I expected him to come in and be successful once again. He is not doing that at the moment. So the Cardinals, if they're going to win this one, are going to have to do it coming from behind late in the game. So not oh. a great way to wrap this up. Yeah. that. Oh, so uh, if people can hear why I'm just groaning, uh, <laughs> the Cardinals had a chance to turn a double play to at least get out of the inning um, uh, down just 2-1. But the uh, uh, Colton uh, did a nice quick turn, as he usually does, but didn't uh, quite get the ball to first base cleanly, and Goldschmidt couldn't dig it out, and uh, another run, the bases were loaded, another run came to score. Yeah, Goldschmidt did a pretty bad job trying to dig that out, but it's, it's probably a tough play. Um, so yeah, three, one now. Well, shoot. All right. I'm going to answer your question now. No, they're not going to do anything this, this season, Tara. They're going to be terrible. <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah. so to end this show on a, a pretty, uh, pretty down note, there it is. The Cardinals still pretty bad. Um, <laughs> but you can join in that conversation as always. I'm curious what you all think about the definition of success, whether it's in relation to the Cardinals or the Dodgers or just sports in general. Can you be a, a real dynasty without ever actually winning a championship? Or do you have to win the title in order to kind of be granted that status as a, a successful dynasty in sports? Let us know what you think. I'm at Tara Wellman. He's at AlexCard79. You can follow Birds on the Black on Twitter as well. Make sure that you are subscribed or following on your favorite podcast listening app and we will be back with you next week to well see if alex is right and the cardinals are done and we're just gonna see more of the same in the right remainder of the season until then thanks for listening we'll talk to you next time